welcome to another podcast episode of Indigenous Roots and Hoots, produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Indigenous Roots and Hoots is about Indigenous people and culture, past and present, success stories and inspiring stories about Indigenous people and what they are doing today. Whether it's arts, music, sports, business, education, and so on, Indigenous people are affecting positive change in their communities throughout Canada. Our aim here is to create a better awareness about Indigenous people to help bridge the gap of understanding for the reconciliation process in Canada to grow. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode on Indigenous Roots and Hoots. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and today my guest is Jennifer Wood. Jennifer is a survivor of the residential school system, now residing in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Over her career span, she has worked with various Indigenous organizations, dedicating her life to helping Indigenous people. She will talk about that today. Hello, Jennifer. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. How are you? I'm good, Gord. How are you? Good, good, good. Uh, So we'll just start by asking you about your family background, where you grew up, and your cultural identity. Tell us a bit about your community as well. So go ahead. Mm -hmm. I come from a reserve in southern Ontario, the English name is Cape Croker. Our Ojibwe name is Niashingami. We are out on a Bruce Peninsula. We are three and a half hours northwest of Toronto. We are in a beautiful community surrounded by the Niagara Escarpment with three bluffs in our community. I come from a rich background. My grandfather was the first baby born on our community and later served for a chief for 46 years. And our First Nations name is, we are Kigidons, which means orator. I have 12 members of my family. There were seven sisters and four brothers, and I'm the youngest. And my mother left before I was five, and my father was raising the rest of us. And he met a woman that came into our community and uh, she was a widow and they connected. And soon after we moved off to reserve and straight out to Northern Manitoba, to Oxford house on Bonneby. That's kind of where you, uh, you grew up. Uh, tell us about Bonneby. It's Oxford house. What's that place like? Beautiful. I always tell everybody that's the most Beautiful community in all the north. It has a beautiful lake, and it's almost up on a hill. And uh, the people from Oxford House are very kind and warm and loving. And I have a really special place in my heart for Bun Bonaby. I was able to go out on the land with my dad to get wood by boat and out on the skidoo in the winter to get the wood in the winter. And... I made lasting, lasting friendships that I still have today. There right. are very, very unique people. Yeah. You're a, a survivor of the residential school system. What residential school did you attend? And describe to us what it was like growing up there. Yeah. I was taken down to Portage Residential School in Portage La Prairie. It's an hour out of Winnipeg. I arrived there when I was 13, and that was in 1973. And, um, you know, because the education wasn't up to my dad's standards and 
they looked at Portage and he took me down there. But when I went traveling with him, I had no comprehension of where I was going. I went along and I was just, you know, I don't know if I was in a daze or what. We drove to Portage and took in my luggage and we met the house parent and and then he takes off his hat and he says, Okay, I'll see you. So I said, What do you mean? Where are you going? And he goes, Well, I'm going back to Oxford House. And I go, and I'm staying here. And I had to keep repeating that. So I had to adapt real fast and I had to really get a grip on my uh, composure and and how I'm going to survive and to live there. So I put on a very good positive attitude that I still have to this day that I believe has taken me into my careers that I, I've been honored to have. And I made lasting friendships there. Of course, with any residential school guard, it's, it, it is lonely because you're with strangers and you're shy and you're into a new system and you're going to school and and you have to eat with everybody and do stuff with everybody when you're you're not used to that so I made a lot of good friends from all over the north from all over Manitoba actually my best friend was from uh, Norrie House and my other one was from Brokenhead we resided in the residence into town so that was hard to adapt to because you know my standard of education wasn't great and I had a hard time in school especially with math I always tell people this I wish I would just disappear so that they don't ask me any questions you know because I didn't know the answer and so I went through all of that and we had good supports at the school. We got involved in sports activities. We went to hockey games. We we had volleyball teams, basketball, like we just kept busy, Gore. And I always tell people I closed down the school in 75 because we lost a lot of students. Every year we would lose students from Christmas time. When the students were able to go home, a lot of them didn't come back. And then we went down to, don't quote me, but I believe we started off at 175 to 150 to 75. Like it just kept going down and they made a decision to close down the school. And um, there was about 15 of us that stayed behind in Portage and we boarded with uh, house parents. Right. And I was very fortunate to to be in with really good house parents because later the house parents, Glenn Carlson, he actually was the industrial teacher at Yellowville School. And he later became mayor of, of Portage. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was quite quite the time. And now um, like anything, you're you're taken away from Things that we could have learned from my father, who was an avid hunter, fisher. He was our linguist in our community. He spoke the language like yeah. no other. So, I was going to ask you, but you uh, you kind of answered it already. Uh, you know, we've had as survivors, we've uh, we went through a lot of stuff. Uh, most of it was negative, uh, the loneliness, and you know, being away from your family your culture, the food, and, you know, the community that we were growing up in, uh, taken away from that. 
And, you know, being away from your family was probably the hardest, you know, the loneliness setting in, you know, once you, once, once you got there. And also, you know, there's been, there was the abuse, you know, physical, mental, emotional, sexual, all that happened in these uh, various uh, residential schools. But I was going to ask you, you know, um, there were a lot of positive things that came out too, you know, like uh, you mentioned, we were involved in sports. Uh, your school actually competed against my school, Dauphin, the Mackay Residential School. We used to see each other at track meets and volleyball yeah. tournaments and basketball tournaments and hockey tournaments. Yeah. And I remember we going to, uh, we won actually a hockey tournament in Cornish one year. <laughs> so anyways, I was going to, you know, I was going to ask you, I mean, talk about some of the positive things that, that came out. Is there something, is there one thing that stands out that's something good, the good memory you have? Uh, that's come out of your experience at Portage Residential School? Yeah, one the one thing that came out of Portage Residential School is that I formed really lasting good friendships that I still have to this day. And I grew fond of the house parents that we had in the school and the counselors that we had. I actually, I like getting used to the structure. I like the times and I had I had duties as we all did. We all had duties and jobs that we had to do on a daily basis and then we'd rotate. So I really it took it it formed a family for me and I still have them very close to my heart. We were involved in a lot of sports, you know, we the one good thing I remember is when we actually left the port the residential school and we're in town, we got to know the neighboring uh, First Nations in Long Plains and we went started going down to the Friendship Center because we wanted to be with our people. And we formed a volleyball team because we wanted to go compete in uh, Dolphin, I believe, or Nikoa. Yeah. We went and found a bus driver, we found an old bus and we we got outfits made. They were mismatched, and we went to the tournament, and we came in, I believe, second place. Wow. <laughs> so I remember that. We had a dance after, and I got most valuable player. I was shocked. <laughs> I go, are they calling me? Everybody's looking at me. I'm sitting on the floor in the gym, and yeah. they get up there, Jennifer, Jenny. They used to call me Jenny. Anyway, that was very, uh, very yeah. memorable for me. Yeah. Didn't you meet your husband there? I did. Darcy. I did. Yeah, we were best friends. I was 13, he was 16, and there was a group of us that hang, hung around together. There were five of us, and we were, you know, we always went everywhere together, and uh, we were best friends. And yeah. then I moved on to Winnipeg because I had a man that lived here, Vera Martin, and uh, Darcy stayed in Portage because he went to work at the uh, Canada Employment Center. Yeah. And, you know, then we we bumped into each other in Winnipeg outside the theater on Portage and Memorial Drive. Literally bumped into each other. Yeah. <laughs> at that time in Winnipeg, it was a lot of people downtown, a lot of people walking. Anyway, that was in 19... I can't remember. But anyway, that's when we got together and... Um, the rest is history. The rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> we always tease each other. I didn't know I'd end up with you. He goes, I didn't know I'd end up with you. <laughs> That's good. That is awesome. Yeah. Uh, so many good memories. And, you know, in spite of uh, 
the hardships we went through in residential school. They're, they're, you know, even myself, I've got some good memories too. And you know, I got a, a, an education out of it, and and mm-hmm. made, made a lot of good friends, lasting friendships, uh, lifetime. Uh, tell us about uh, you're working at the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Center now. Tell us about that organization and what you do there and what they do. Well, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, during the all the talks of the settlement agreement, they they chose Winnipeg to have the National Center here in Winnipeg. And I remember clearly, because I worked on the file for 10 years, <clears throat> I remember thinking this is so great because we there was a lot of people that lobbied and, and worked so hard to have it here in Winnipeg. But the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation is responsible and accountable to be the steward for the experiences, the photos, the archives, the memories. They're entrusted with all this information to store and, and keep under, you know, close uh, watch. What information? What stuff are you talking about? Uh, records, photos. From, from where? Statements from survivors. Oh, okay, okay. From survivors, yep. Yeah. They're the holders of all the records and archives. And uh, they do them digitally, I believe. And uh, they're looking at doing statement gathering. Um, they do a lot of research. They have a lot of academics involved because it's alongside the uh, University of Manitoba. And now with the new findings and burials of missing children, you know, which galvanized the country, the National Center is getting a lot of inquiries and requests. I always tell people we're at the tip of the iceberg here at what we have to undertake and, and to ensure that it's done right. My role with the NCTR is... My title is the Commemoration and Community Liaison Officer. They have requested that I could head up the Namikwenamak Fund. It's a fund that is for survivors who wish to commemorate and honor their survivors in their community in any which way that they feel is best for them. It's for $10,000. You have to be a nonprofit organization to apply. You can't apply as an individual a band office, school, health program, survivors group, as long as you're incorporated. We have a regional advisory circle that is made up of survivors across Canada that we meet with with the applications when when they come through. We've screened them for the uh, survivor circle and we meet and uh, we, we talk through them. But it's a really unique fund and I believe what I've noticed with this fun, Namakwenamak fun, which is, which means I remember them. What I see is that it's bringing communities together. It's bringing everyone together on how they want to commemorate. We have survivors that are wanting to do healing gatherings. We have survivors that are doing uh, quilting blankets. We have survivors that are putting on workshops to, to go back to what is important to them, the values and cultures. There's a lot of survivors that are looking at land-based education, going back to the land with the survivors. The key for this fund is that it is supported by survivors, endorsed by survivors, and that they are involved in the planning. So it's an ongoing fund. It's not a complicated fund. It's three pages long. 
And as long as you put your brief description, it's and answer the questions. It's it's uh, pretty unique. So I'm really happy that the NCTR is uh, offering this fund from Parks Canada, actually through NCTR. The funding did you receive from the uh, from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission or Center? Is this like permanent funding, or is it just year to year? It's not permanent, but it's ongoing. There's been a lot of donations that have come through NCTR, like Parks Canada approached NCTR and asked how they would like to help them. And they, you know, talked about ways that they could, and they came up with with this fund. So, and there's other things too um, under NCTR that it's called Imagine Canada. I believe that's more for people looking at reconciliation, non-Native people and First Nations individuals. So I'm really pleased that I believe that a lot more will be coming through the doors of NCTR to administer and uh, provide different funds for survivors. I believe it's going to be ongoing. Right. Well, let's hope that Truth and Reconciliation continues to do its work, uh, the good work that they do stays on and many years Many more years to come. Mm-hmm. You worked for the uh, the famous Indigenous Canadian Elijah Harper, a former yes, MLA and MP who blocked the passage of the Beach Lake Accord. For those people who are not aware of this historic issue, give a brief summary of why Mr. Harper decided that this was not a good deal for Indigenous people. Well, basically, they were attempting to amend the Constitution without First Nations people involvement. As you know, back in 1990, the the amendments to the Constitution was started in 1987, and they had so many years to ratify it and pull it through the different provinces. Well, the date came by June. They had to have it ratified and, and passed through by June the 22nd. At that time, you know, the former national leader, Phil Fontaine, former grand chief of AMC, uh, former national chief, Ovid McCready, and all the chiefs of Manitoba, they got together and they they were seeing the ongoing discussions of the Meat Lake Accord, that they had to have all the, the premiers of all the of country involved. But the thing is, within the Constitution, they didn't have consultation with First Nations. And uh, Quebec was attempting to become a distinct society. And, you know, our leaders out here in Manitoba were watching all of this unfold, watching Brian Mulrooney, past premier, and they got together and they started to, to strategize. And they, they, they knew that the, this would be coming to the Manitoba legislature. And you had to have unanimous consent of all the MLAs in order to pass this accord. And Elijah had a lot of pressure on him. All of Canada was watching, but with the backing and support of the Manitoba chiefs, you know, he single-handedly held a feather, eagle feather, and he said no. And it blocked the entire process. Historical baking into history. And lo and behold, uh, he was displeased with the accord and, a lot of people watching and, you know, the, the first one that attempted to not support it was uh, New Brunswick, the then Premier Frank McKenna. But later on, he uh, advocated for it. So 
it came down to Manitoba and Elijah blocked it by two syllables. No, Mr. Yeah. Speaker. Yeah, I remember that time. There must have been a tremendous amount of pressure on him. Was he the only one in MLA, MLA that, uh, that said yes. no? Yes. Well, yeah, and they, uh, they made a film about that uh, later on. I, get, I don't know where it's at now. But uh, I, want, I wanted to ask you, what Elijah was like during that time, you know, he was always such a friendly person. Uh, personality was, you know, always friendly and welcoming, uh, and such a gentle gentleman. You know, that's what I describe him. Being under so much pressure in the Canadian spotlight, the media there all the time. What was it like at that time? Like around being around him, what was he like? Uh, what was the atmosphere like? And it must have been pretty charged. Uh, atmosphere probably quite intense describe the, the that period uh, and how uh, what was like uh, living that moment or those, those days yes i came on in september after the meat like accord after everything had happened but of course i was there you know are uh, <laughs> outside the ledge and it was quite a time in history because it brought Every First Nation in solidarity for one cause that we are taking pride in ourselves. It lifted up our spirit. It brought all our nations together across Canada. So everyone felt proud. It was, it was an amazing feeling. So when I started with Elijah in September, I remember going into his office, the first floor of the legislative building to your left. And I went to the office. There were boxes. And they have cathedral ceilings in the ledge. The boxes were to the ceiling. There Whoa. was no path, no pathway. I almost cried. <laughs> Those were letters from across Canada and the world in support of his position that he took to stand up and uh, speak up for First Nations people that we are the original peoples of this country, yet we were not consulted or considered in the amendments that they were trying to make the Meech Lake Accord. So when I started with him, I was marveled at how much he could function under pressure. There was tremendous pressure, pressure in the ledge, pressure from um, other governments. You know, there was, there was threats. There was threats on his life. He had Death to threats, yeah. go into hiding and he had security. And But when I started and um, started working for him, the invitations were outstanding. I don't think any other leader had those type of invitations and letters and inquiries because he was global, national icon that everyone wanted for him to speak but he still had to maintain his duties as an NDP member of the legislative assembly so he had a double double duty but he really was one of the most kindest down-to-earth individuals I have ever known I've witnessed him in intense meetings that I would have crawled out of but he composed himself, maintained his composure, because he spoke the truth all the time. He yeah. always made reference to our land, the treaties, 
We are entrenched in the constitutions. We are people of the land. We care for the land. We are the first peoples of our land. So he really always reiterated that in a lot of meetings. He stuck to the point, even though it was difficult things to say, and the, the tension you could cut with a knife, he always remained composed. He was never nervous. And I was always amazed at that. But when he was angry, whenever he did get angry at someone, which was rare, 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 I wouldn't want to be the person on the other end because rarely was he ever angry. He always, always was for the youth. He was always, always talking about what it meant to be a leader. Our community members vote in the leader. And that's what you got to look at when you see the leaders of a community. They have a tremendous weight on their shoulder. They have tremendous responsibilities. He always spoke up for that. And the youth, he always maintained that you're a leader in your own way as a youth. He always spoke up for the importance of maintaining your connection to the land to exercising and practicing your your hunting and fishing rights and going out into your traditional territory. He goes, never forget about the land where you come from. And he always made a point. Every September, he went into his traditional territories in Red Sucker Lake for a week or, I don't know, two weeks. That's how he grounded himself. And he always got a moose. I don't know how the guy did it, but he would always come back to Ottawa after his holiday, be refreshed, he'd be ready to fight. And uh, yeah, while I'm talking about, I'm just realizing how honored I was to and privileged to work for such an individual. Yeah. Was that here in Ottawa when he was a member of parliament? He was a member of parliament from 1993 for three years. And he lost in the next election. But even running, you know, he crossed the floor. He was a member of the NDP for 11 years. And in 1993, he walked the floor and he ran liberal against Rod Murphy. Yes. Yeah. And then he moved to Ottawa. We all moved to Ottawa. We. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that time when uh, he was here. He used to always have this annual Christmas party yeah. at his house and uh, with his wife, and they'd host a beautiful Christmas party. And uh, we were fortunate enough to be invited there a couple of times. And I may have seen you there. Uh, yeah. But, uh, there were so many people there that he had, he had so many friends and so many supporters. And it was, uh, it was really sad when uh, he passed away. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. That was devastating. Yeah. It's coming up on May, I believe it's May 17th is when. All right. Yeah. Language and cultural revitalization is an important issue now facing Indigenous peoples across our country. What are your thoughts on this issue? My thoughts on this issue is that, to me, personally speaking, that's the only thing that's going to save our people is to go back and learn your culture and your language and your values and the teachings that were taught by your grandparents. Our young people are missing that in today's society. I don't know how it can be done, but I made connection when we spoke about, you know, what it meant for the apology. 
to me, the apology means opening up different doors now so that we can have programs nationally to address culture and language for our young people to learn, to get it right into the schools, for it to be mandatory in the schools so that it will regain their confidence, it will give them pride in themselves. Uh, we are in a real, a real uh, not so good state. And I believe that's the only thing that will help them. When you have an identity and you know where you come from and you know your language and you know the history of your community, that really, really grounds you. And it gives you a sense of confidence. And I really believe that. And I think it's happening. I believe it's happening now, like with the reconciliation talks in Canada. I believe that institutions and organizations are starting to see the relevance of this and starting to see where the gap is and they're starting to close that gap. And I think with the apology that it's telling the truth. When you speak the truth, to me, that's your step to reconciliation. Yeah. And to me, the truth, we have a lot of truth that we have to acknowledge. The yeah. truth of our poverty, the truth of our housing conditions, the truth of the social injustices, the truth of substandard housing. That's what it all leads into. But it's a start, and it's starting in Canada. Yeah. How do you feel about the Pope's apology um, and about him coming to Canada? Do you see that as a positive or uh, a negative? To me, personally speaking, I see it as a positive. Hope is the anchor to everything. And for for me to witness watching the Pope apologize, and to me, when you're apologizing, you're acknowledging the truth, the truth of what happened to our people in Canada, the legacy of abuse in Canada nationwide. When he's and when he's coming to Canada on our land and apologizing, it's going to resonate across Canada and at least it's the start in the right direction because what it's going to show the rest of Canada is that all these abuses that we have been talking about and lobbying and negotiating through different agreements, that it did happen. It is the truth. And the truth is acknowledged by the Pope, head of the Vatican, coming to Canada, is acknowledging a truth. So to me, it's a step in the right direction. I always say that uh, healing is personal. It's very personal. And if the apology doesn't apply to a lot of survivors, that's personal to them and they have their own reasons. Because trauma is something that happens inside of you, not to you. And it's hard to talk about. So Canada, to me, they're sitting in their living rooms and they're, they're, they're witnessing all of this. And you know, and I know, Gord, that a lot of times with First Nations issues, you know, people tend to say, why don't the First Nations get over it? Well, you know what? We can't get over what happened. And the truth has to be acknowledged. And we have to feel a sense of validation. And to me, the Pope apologizing is validation, and it's a start in the right direction. Well said. Thank you. Uh, my final question is uh, on reconciliation, which is kind of appropriate to uh, what you just said. 
How do you feel about this whole question about reconciliation? And what do Canadians need to do to make Canada a better country to live in for all Canadians? Well, reconciliation, it has to be, again, reconciliation starts with the truth. And the truth has started to be told. We witnessed through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission when they went across Canada with Honorable Judge Murray Sinclair, head of the commission. It was viewed on national television that the disclosures of the stories of the survivors, it was all across Canada, it was publicized, it was on national TV. So to me, that would resonate with one, with the greater larger public that they've seen the disclosures and the pain and the suffering that the survivors were speaking about. So reconciliation is happening and it's, it's happening in a lot of ways. I, I can give an example here in Manitoba where we were talking about where we get our water from in Manitoba. Our water comes from a First Nations reserve across the border in Show Lake Number 40. At that time when there was a lobbying group that came together and it was all non-Native people and First Nations people that came together for that cause to fight for that. And it was really amazing to see at the legislative grounds that to me is reconciliation. Other reconciliations are, you know, people looking and being empathetic about the MMIW inquiry. This is happening. Our women are going missing and our young men. So with greater, larger public empathetic towards that and understanding and finding common ground and wanting to help us in different ways. I see groups out here coming together. When we have marches out here with MMIW, it's a lot of people coming together, non-Native people, First Nations people, Métis people. Everyone is coming together because that could be a woman's sister or child. Another one is the, the day school that's upon us, the application process. You know, it's opening up the doors. It's starting to recognize and be compassionate and look at agreements. And they are granted through the courts and to wherever that, you know, you can apply for your, your time at day school. I see a lot of forms. I see a lot of people coming together. And it's really important that the young people get involved. I just lost my frame of thinking. But anyways, it is happening. That's reconciliation. What Canadians can do, they can start lobbying and talking to their member of parliaments and their members of the legislative assemblies. They can start talking to their directors of education, to the private sector, the corporate sector, talking to the governments to say this is the truth of what's happening. How can we help them? Can we have meetings? Can we come together and have town hall meetings? And let's talk. You know, I always tell people too that our summer is coming upon us and there's a lot of powers that are happening in Manitoba here. I always tell our non-Native friends, don't be afraid to go to, to that powwow because we would welcome you. We want you to learn our culture. We want you to see our dances. We want you to feel a part of this. But they always say, you know, it's just a perception that they have. They don't feel that they can go or that they're allowed to go. I said, you are. It's open. Right. Come and sit on the bench and take in a, a culture and, and, and ask questions. Yeah. Our yeah. people are, you know, we're not going to turn you away. Right. Yeah. I think what you said about the truth coming out, you know, really is the beginning of uh, this country. Uh, 
developing reconciliation, reconciling with each other. It's kind of like, you know, almost like a, a family discovering, you know, all, all the bad things that the, the history of the family has done. The truth hurts, you know, uh, but it makes you stronger, I think, as a unit, you know, when you know the bad truth about what uh, the history of your family or the history of your country did, then you mm-hmm. become, become to heal, you come together stronger as a as a unit, as a group, as a country. So I really like the way you 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 talked about that. And uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this, Jennifer. Uh, I've been talking to Jennifer Wood from uh, Survivor from uh, uh, Manitoba. Uh, she now resides in uh, Winnipeg, working for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Thank you very much on behalf of Legacy Hope Foundation. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. You bet, Gord. It was good talking to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.